Hello, welcome to the East London Radio Private Lives Podcast. This is Paul Robinson. Both of today's guests have been inspired by jazz and achieved commercial success by fusing it with soul, R&B and pop. Originally called the Jazzy Acts, Cool and the Gang tempered their jazz sensibilities and signed to Delight Records, kick-starting a long-running career, selling huge volumes of singles and albums. We'll talk with Robert Coolbell, the band's leader, later. But first, to Bill Sharp and Jill Sayward from British jazz funk band Shack Attack. Their cool, distinctive sound fusing jazz, soul and pop got them recognised at jazz festivals around the world. And here at home they've enjoyed a succession of chart hits, including Easier Said Than Done, Dark Is The Night, Nightbirds and Down On The Street. I asked both of them, Bill first, what they were listening to when they were growing up. At school and stuff, I wasn't listening to any, any of the kind of music really we play now. Um, although my, my father, was, he played a bit of piano and he loved listening to Oscar Peterson. Uh, people like that. So there was jazz in the house, but my particular taste at the time was uh, I was a big Beatles fan and I was into rock, you know, Led Zeppelin, all that kind of stuff. And then I got into prog rock. Um, I was a particular fan of Keith Emerson, who I thought was, you know, a great well, organist and keyboard player. And he, he had sort of jazz influences. So in the early days, I was very much a prog rock kind of guy, very different to now. And while you were listening to Keith Emerson, did it ever occur to you that maybe, you know, this might be a future direction for Bill Sharp and a band? I've been playing in bands, really, since uh, since my teens. That's what I always wanted to do. Years ago, I played guitar in prog rock bands, because so, the keyboard player owned the, the only keyboard. He wouldn't let me... Um, he, I say this in a modest way, he wouldn't let me play keyboards because I was better than him, so I had to play guitar. <laughs> so, um, so it was, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of fun in those days. And, I, and we were doing sort of covers, but we were also writing original material then. So I, I'd always had the dream, you know, and it was Thursday night, half past seven, top of the pops. And, and I, I really did, from the age of about 14, 15, I thought, oh, I'd really love to be on top of the pops sometime. Never thought it might happen. But it was, it was always in the back of my mind a little bit. And in terms of forming the first band, how did you go about that? Uh, I was always drawn to the, the, the people that had a PA. They, um, <laughs> and a van probably as well. And a bit, and a bit of money as well. Okay. <laughs> no, no, serious. I mean, it was, um, I was just, weirdly enough, the band I was just talking about with the keyboard player, he, um, he lived down the road from me. We, I was born in Bishop Stortford in Hertfordshire and... Uh, uh, and he, they just moved in, and I was playing guitar in my living room. And uh, he jumped, jumped in front of the window, just jumped off the garden wall, said, "Oh hi, my name's Andy. Do you want to form a band?" And um, it was just one of those things. So I just sort of, yeah, great. So we formed a band, and then I just uh, from then, I just loved playing in bands. I liked the social aspect. Uh, school, it was kind of cool, and and I was quite shy. So it was a good way of kind of being on stage with a chance of possibly meeting girls as well. So it was incredibly shallow, really. Um, but nothing and, wrong with uh, that. And many musicians say the same thing. It was <laughs> yeah, a great way to I meet girls. Nothing wrong with that at all. Stand, yeah. Bulk standard, really. Uh, and it worked, really, you know, so that, that was good. Uh, and it was just, I just really enjoyed it. And I liked the, I liked the social aspect. I kind of, um, I just was drawn to people who, you know, love music because uh, you had so much in common listening to albums. You know, the days when we used to listen to albums and uh, read the album sleeves and stuff like that. And we go around someone's house and talk about, like a, you know, almost like a book club, but an album club. And um, so, yeah, so for, for me, it was like uh, any chance of being in a band. Sometimes I've been three bands at the same time. So, uh, so it was great. And You're a busy boy. 
Well, yeah, you know, it was it was great fun, and then do a bit of work in between. That's why my A level grades weren't so great. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. You can't have everything. Jill, were you in a band, or was this not the world that you were in at the time? Oh, I was. Yes, I was in a similar world musically, listening to. I mean, Hendrix. That was the sort of vibe that was going around the school. But to be to be honest with you, there weren't any females I aspired to at that time because there there weren't any females in rock. That sort of gutsy type of image didn't exist not not in the uk i mean our icons were people like mary hopkins and you know various other <laughs> those were the days my friends ladies, you know so because of that i had trouble in getting a job with the band because they all advertised for you know male singer no breadheads needed with, with, with balls blah 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 i just applied for it and turned up to the auditions and that's how i got a job okay yeah, so, uh, so it was on your voice basically and your ability to sing yeah. which is fine that's and how it, was, it should be it was, yeah completely unusual as well to have a 16 year old girl turning up for an audition to sing heavy rock you know it was, it was great so and it, it did really well as well what sort of stuff were you singing when you were 16 it was jazz rock we were making concept albums the band was called fusion orchestra and oddly enough there we still get besieged by people that came to see the shows way back you know so some still loyal fans turning up with old old albums and bits and pieces so uh, yeah I left my mark you cl- you made an impact Lily which is great <laughs> so let's go forward then to Bill you forming Shack Attack how did that come about well Shack Attack uh, really came about from two two different bands and the connection between it was Roger Roger O'Dell our drummer and uh, in the mid-70s which I, I sort of mentioned before I got the call in Bishop Stalford Roger and his wife Lorraine were sort of the Johnny Dankworth and Cleo Lane of Bishop Stortford. And I got the I got summoned. You were summoned? Okay. I got summoned. They were looking for a keyboard player for this this band that Roger was starting called Tracks. Basically it was myself, Roger, Keith Winter, who was the original Shack Attack guitarist, and a bass player was Trevor Horn, who was uh, went on to do quite well as a producer. We were playing Mount Vishnu Orchestra, George Duke, Weather Report, you know, all that kind of stuff. We were playing mostly covers. <clears throat> I started to write a few bits and pieces as well for, for tracks. And it sort of developed. And then um, I think um, uh, maybe in the sort of about 79-ish, uh, Roger was playing in the band that Jill played in with Nigel, who was our producer, Nigel Wright. This was the uh, Cat's Whiskers in Streatham. And so Nigel somehow managed to, he heard a couple of tunes that I'd written. And um, we, we met and he suggested sort of kind of putting the, putting the band together. So... It started uh, started actually on the, the front lawn of my garden, actually. We sat there and uh, he was discussing what we could do. And we went into the studio and we recorded three songs, one of which became our first single, which was Stepping. Uh, and so we were, we were instrumental band to start with. But then obviously the connection between uh, the fact that Jill was working and I don't, did um, Jackie work at the Cat's Whiskers as no, well, Jill? No, 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 just she me. Didn't. So it was Jill. So it was really Nigel and Jill with a connection of the Cat's Whiskers, Roger Keith and myself. So you had the kind, I guess, the more sort of soul poppy stuff coming from Streatham, and you had the jazz <laughs> rocks coming from Bishop Stortford, and it was the meeting of Streatham and Bishop Stortford. <laughs> you can't do any better than that. You can't. I mean, it doesn't sound like LA and San Francisco, does it? But it's, it doesn't have the romance of it, but that's kind of how it came together. Nothing wrong with that at all. You signed to Polydor. How did that come about? In those days, you know, you made white labels to promote the the band and um i'll just throw something in as well because most people say where did the name come from and um the name actually came from uh, a record shop in soho called the record shack and uh we didn't have a name for the band at the time 
So it was called uh, Record Shack. Somebody thought Shack Shack Attack. Um, and so some, I, we still don't really remember who came up with the name, but we decided on the name Shack Attack, which I thought sounded great. It started sort of creating a bit of a buzz. And we got into the um, lower end of the dance charts, you know, those sort of like blues and soul charts and stuff. Mm. Obviously, A&R people were sort of sniffing around for different bands and stuff. And one of the guys at Polydor came to one of our really early gigs, I think, which was uh, an all-day in maybe Skegness or something like that, one of those early 80s all-dayers. And they uh, they decided to sign. They didn't sign us to do albums and stuff. They just they just decided to sign the record. And uh, so that's kind of how, um, how, how it all started. The guy, actually, who signed us was also the guy that um, discovered Gloria Gaynor and I Will Survive. So, um, so we thought, well, he's, he obviously knows what he's doing, so we're in with a good chance. That's how the Polydor connection came about. Fantastic. So step in with your first single. That didn't really do much in the chart. Feels like the right time just got into the top 75. Then the first time I came across you when I was a, a radio DJ was living in the UK with that vocoder vocal. Yes, that was um, yeah. But again, before before the girls kind of got involved, and mm. that was Nigel actually. Who did the, he? He we decided he was best on vocoder, so uh, he used to do the vocoder stuff, and it was it, it sort of worked. You know, it was um, we we liked the idea of having a few few words. And obviously, we did on feels like the right time, and so it was it was that sort of gradual progression, obviously, which which turned into Jill and Jackie. You know, doing the their f- very first thing, which actually was the the, the vocals on uh, Brazilian Dawn. Um, as, as a single uh, but yeah the vocoder was kind of um it was great great fun and it was um it was great because none of us could sing really so it was an opportunity to do some kind of vocal which uh, we thought sort of worked quite well you're listening to podcast radio brazilian dawn of course their debut and then the song that really had a big impact and i think all the radio stations in the uk picked up on this and this is easier said than done big hit i had the idea for for the song from a lyric that Roger wrote, actually, it was actually um, uh, it started life as a song, uh, and I can't remember how how it uh, when I took it took it to, to the band, obviously, routined it and started playing it, and I think maybe between us we all thought, well, this is going to work as a song, so we did the the backing track um, and put it together, and it just started to feel really good. I don't know, do, do you remember how? How we when we what point we did put the vocals in the track? Do you remember how that came about? Um, I don't remember that. I, I remember the vocal session. I remember being mm. called for it because um, Jackie and I had we were involved in a lot of session work, you know. So we had a couple of things going on in London and a gig after that, and so Jackie was a bit frantic to get away. But whilst we were doing the song, I remember that Roger was specific on um, the vocal direction saying then no harmonies no just straight just on the chorus this is exactly what we want and i remember thinking first of all "Mm, it's a bit odd doesn't sort of gel to me and after a few listens through i thought oh my god this is going to be big and i remember jackie didn't see it at the time and i remember she was you know trying to get away for this session and i'm thinking to myself i think i may want to hang around here and i think this is going to be something quite unique i want to be on this bandwagon I'm going to hang it out. So you, you could see straight away, Joel, this was going to be a hit. You, you, could, you spotted that. Oh, definitely. I remember doing the vocal. As I say, it was a few takes in when you got used to the fact that it was just a chorus vocal and, and no harmony, it's just unison, which is, is very difficult to sing. You know, two girls singing in unison is, is very hard, you know. Uh, Pitching-wise, it's hard too. And I remember thinking, oof, I think this is it. You know, I'm, I'm not leaving this boat. 
Well, you were very wise and you made a great decision. I mean, Bill, this got you onto TV. You said Top of the Pops earlier and you did this song on Top of the Pops, I think. It was. It was. It was fantastic, actually. It was the... Um, I remember when um, when it first came up because it, it was just before Christmas, I think, in, in sort of um, 1981. What had happened with all our records was they got near the top 40, but they didn't break in. You know, you, you needed to break into the top 40 in those days to get on the playlist, which is a big thing on Radio 1 then. Um, so there was a chap at Polydor who really pursued it. And just after Christmas, I think, it started going back up the charts again. And somebody at Top of the Pops, maybe Michael Hurl, decided, oh, let's get this band on. Because we'd sort of created this buzz. So uh, when, when I got the phone call, probably the same for all of us, we got the call saying, you're on Top of the Pops for me. It was like, oh, my oh, God. God. It was just so cool. And, of course, we were on Top of the Pops. I mean, I can't say... Keith, our old guitarist, would often say we were successful in spite of the way we looked. <laughs> we weren't we weren't the icons of fashion, say like a Duran Duran or a Spandau Ballet, but it was just the fact we got on there. People heard the song, and it it, it did. And it, it for, I mean, for the whole lifespan of Top of the Pops, really, it had a ma- massive influence on on the success of bands. And of course, after that, um, it went racing up the charts. And we appeared on top of the pops again, and I think it stayed on the charts for over three months. So it was, uh, it became a really big hit for us, and uh, it was just, it was brilliant. You know, I mean, it was. Uh, and I remember when I, when we did the first top of the pops, we were on with all sorts of different bands, and one of the acts was John and Vangelis. I can't remember what song it was of theirs they were doing, but in the rehearsal we were just doing the doing the tracks and everything. And uh, when I walked around to go to the dressing room, I could hear him sitting at the piano, playing the uh, the verse. And he just looked at me and he put his thumb up like that. And I thought, oh, this is, this is what it's all about. <laughs> <laughs> so childhood dreams sort of um, come true. You must have felt amazing. Yeah, oh, it was, wasn't it? it was, wasn't it great, Julie? Yeah, it was fantastic. It really was. It really was. The things that go through your mind as the countdown, the music starts, and you think, yeah, all those, all those people at school that said I was dreaming, you know, oh, yeah, and uh, this one's for you, and this one's for you, you know. Here I am. <laughs> <laughs> So you mentioned how you looked on the show and you, you looked good. You didn't look particularly amazing, but you looked good. But you had an energy about you. I mean, I thought what you brought to it, and I've reviewed it, was you were really having fun. You were smiling. You were moving around. I mean, it just had a good time feel, I think. And we still do. I mean, that's an important part of the show because um, I guess it's our training too because, you know, we, we, we all come from different bands and we realise the importance of stage presence and giving the audience some, you know, eye contact and fun and everything. I think we just, we all applied it to the TV shows because a lot of the bands weren't. They were, you know, we were post-punk, wasn't it? There was a lot of look angry and ignore the audience. So, And we did get slated for that, though, a lot of times. You know, the, the image of us smiling and cheesy and happy on stage, we got ridiculed a lot you know and we had some terrible reviews really because you look great i mean you you look like you're having you look you look the thing is you look like regular guys having a great time well that was the problem you see at that time we didn't have an image (laughs) that was exactly the problem (laughs) and we got slated one particular interview said you know shack attack known for their boring band names like keith and you know nigel and and it was it was ridiculous we were slated but we survived well, I shouldn't ignore them. And, and anyway, you proved them wrong anyway in the end. Let's now move on from Easy Said Than Done, which just was outside the top 10, got to number 12. And then, of course, you had this amazing success with Nightbirds. We were doing the Nightbirds album and um, Nigel, I think someone from the record company, they just said, look, we, uh, we need to follow the single up pretty quickly. 
so at the time we hadn't got a we didn't think we had another single so uh, Nigel said we need uh, you know Bill can you write something so I, uh, as my, my memory is that everybody went down the pub and um, came back in an hour or two and I just sat at the piano and I just came up with the basic idea of the tune and I thought that sounds quite good da -da 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 -da. I thought it sounds a bit like something maybe but I played it to everybody and then that day and night we uh, routine the backing track and then I think Nigel said we need a middle eight so I came up with a little middle eight thing and we put it together quite quickly actually uh, and then of course the vocals went on and suddenly it's this wonderful thing Jill probably remember in those days when we we had these tunes and stuff and then there's a point when you're thinking like oh this really sounds like a hit mm. and uh, then as soon as we got to a point I think with the vocals on there started to mix it and you thought oh this is this could be good of course we whacked it off to Polydor and they they were very happy and that came out pretty quickly after easier said than done I think and because we were you know starting to ride the crest of a wave it got um, lots of airplay and it was also the song that kind of took us worldwide as well it became a huge hit in Japan and it started to make us more of a global thing rather than just uh, a band in the UK so it was a it was a big big song for us also picked up by Sam Mendes, I think. That's a funny story, really. When you, when somebody said to me, I'd heard that they were going to use Nightbirds in um, Away We Go, which is a great sort of like a road movie and stuff. So I thought, oh, wow, fantastic. You know, we got a song in the Hollywood movie. And I went along and I was thinking, well, where's it coming? Where's it coming? Is it going to be when they're driving down the road? Is it going to be this big feature? And in the end, they were having lunch at a dog track in the middle of somewhere in America. <laughs> and it was Nightbirds was the music playing in the background. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was great that they played it but it wasn't exactly what you call a big feature <laughs> podcast radio so you must have felt great now top 10 song and um, you're in demand and you talked about uh, japan and the far east where you continue to be incredibly popular and there's a massive massive following for shack attack in japan and the far east do you, do you know why that is Night, nightbirds was i say was it was used on a on an advert in japan and i think that that helped they used to when they did uh, maybe a car or something like that, when they do, I don't know if they still do, but in those days when they, they did an advert, it had the name of the band that came up. And I think that, that helped. And plus as well, we had somebody in the record company, Polydor, who heard the song and thought maybe this could do well in Japan because it's a semi-instrumental song, so it's not, it's not all lyrics, so it'd be easy for people to understand. And uh, this friend, friend of ours who became a great friend, Kazu, who was, uh, then became on to become the head of, universal over in japan um and um he uh he sort of said once to me or to us he said uh, why why do you think japan japan loved nightbird so much he said it appealed to traditional japanese sensibilities so that's the answer I always give. <laughs> no, it's a good answer. And uh, why not? If it works, hey, don't try and fix it or don't try and analyse it too much. Yeah, that first step into the industry is something you always remember, isn't it? And this was clearly very important for you at that particular time. Oh, definitely. Because, as I say, there, wasn't, there were no other females doing what I was doing, uh, which was fronting a, a jazz rock band, you know, being, being the leader of the band, being, you know, dominant and producing the whole lot and playing instruments on stage so it was completely unique you did add more vocals as you went on was that because you wanted to have more commercial success or was that because that was a natural development because you had these two great singers in the band what happened was that um jackie raw uh, decided to leave the band because she was working with um other artists and stuff and we got a few few other singers involved and uh, it was never quite the same really as the sound 
because um, Jill and Jackie's voice just work so well together. It's the, the vocal sound of Shack Attack. So when we were working on Out of This World album, uh, we had a song, I'd written a song called Dark Is The Night, um, and it lent, it lent itself to Jill singing it solo. Even though it was a piano melody, there was a vocal chorus, but it was a solo vocal chorus. And that's kind of how that evolved into Jill really becoming the, the main singer in the band. And that obviously then led on to the Down on the Street album where we started doing full songs and Jill was like the, the featured singer. So it, was, it wasn't necessarily an intentional thing suddenly to go, right, let's write a song. I mean, we did have songs on, on the other albums with different singers and stuff, but um, it was sort of kind of after that Down on the Street sort of cemented the, the lineup, which was the, uh, basically you know, the, the five of us really. Um, and um, that's the, the main artist. And then, of course, Jill, she was, you know, like, obviously part of the band. Because before, it was like, you know, a bunch of guys, really. Then, then of course, we, we started uh, you know, songs like Down on the Street, uh, Blaming on Love, City Rhythm. And we kind of uh, started getting into our, our style a little bit, you know, the image thing. And then it was all downhill. Yeah, I knew. It was so I, predictable. I knew. I, 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 you, you knew so I was going to say that. We all have our moment in the sun. Let, let's just go back to Darkest the Night. Let's stay with the uphill bit for a moment because as well as being a great creative decision, it was also a great commercial decision because actually Darkest the Night was your follow-up top 20 hit after Nightbirds because it got to number 15 and the songs in between had just sort of missed, hadn't they, being top 20. So this was obviously a very successful successful song and a, a popular song and sold lots and lots of copies we did have some um, invitations in between that which which that, that album did quite well 24 um, yeah and then um so yeah dark is the night was uh it, i guess you know listening back to that it was uh, we'd started we started working with a new sound engineer a guy called nick smith and um we were just sort of uh, changing the sound a little bit we were getting into a bit more technology because dark is the night's a drum machine not actually roger playing the drums so so it was just, it was a more experimental period. Um, you know, samplers were coming in. We got a couple of tracks on there where we went a bit bonkers with fair lights and all kinds of stuff. So they were really interesting times. Technology was really changing. So um, it was exciting times. And, you know, Dark as the Night was probably, an Out of This World album was probably the start of that, um, the whole process really of moving on a little bit for us. So Jill, you're now part of the band permanently because you've done a great job. That must have been a nice feeling. That it was strange in the beginning because when they did decide to, I think we'd had enough auditioning, so many girl singers that just wanted to be out the front totally, you know, not prepared to be um, part of a unit. You know, it's quite important to be, you know, with another girl singing in unison. It's, it's quite difficult to find somebody. So when it did fall back to me and when Dark as a Night charted, I thought to myself, okay, I'm glad I didn't rush off to that session when we did easier said than done. It's eventually paid off, you know. It's nice. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm in a happy place now. I just take a back seat in some of the numbers, come to the front for some. You know, I've got I've got the best of both worlds. I can come and do my bit, and I can go into the background, play a bit of percussion, and slot into the band really nicely. And it, and I'm in a very happy place with that. It's a nice gig. Hard to imagine Shack Attack without you now, though. Oh, thank you. Did you say that? Did Bill hear that? I hope so. Bill, <laughs> yes. did you hear that? I'll say it again. Hard to imagine Shack's out without Jill now, wouldn't you say? No, yes, there you uh, go. Yeah, you're abs- absolutely right. Of course, she's, <laughs> she's indispensable. <laughs> absolutely. Um, you mentioned Rod Temperton before. And, uh, of course, um, Rod also was um, not necessarily a fashion icon. He was the keyboard player, wasn't he, in Heatwave? And we were talking earlier yeah. about you looking good, but, you know, not sort of maybe, um, you know, overdressed on top of the pops. He was always underdressed and he looked a bit sort of geeky, didn't he? sitting there 
there playing the keyboards and there was this genius uh, who was doing all this amazing work sitting there playing the keyboards for Heatwave. Yes, I mean, I think it was uh, extraordinary. You know I mean, I, I, loved, I, I can't say I look, I wouldn't want to say I look better than he did. I wish I'd written <laughs> the songs that he'd written, you know, and it just goes to show really, you know, that uh, it doesn't necessarily matter what you look like. It's, uh, it's what's inside and what you come out with that's the key. And I think with us, you know, I mean, even, even though we weren't fashion icons of the 80s, um, although we had a little moment when we, were, we had a bit more style about us, um, I think the music has definitely survived the, uh, the image for sure. Now, you play all over the world at jazz festivals, you know, from Jakarta, Bangkok, Bratislava, London, obviously. You clearly love playing, both of you. Oh, definitely, definitely. And I'm missing it so much. I'm really frustrated. I'm just desperate to get back in salute. <clears throat> so do you think you'll do some gigs maybe next year? A number of bands are starting to schedule you know, actual live, in-person events for 2021. Do you think Shack Attack might go on the road next year? We've got loads. We've had everything from... This year has been rescheduled to next year. So we've got um, we've got a big tour of Germany in March. We've got um, some UK shows. Uh, hopefully we'll go. We're supposed to go to Japan uh, this October, but obviously that hasn't happened. Uh, South Africa. So we, there's a lot of things um, booked in. Some which will be booked in, but it's so hard to know. I mean, I'm, now I'm starting to worry about March next year. We all thought well March will be safe. I'm hoping that. Uh, Something will have happened in between now and then that will enable us to get back on the road. Fingers crossed, obviously, it's it's just so hard. It's week by week, isn't it? Yeah, so it's taking longer than so we thought as well, I think, isn't it? To get so back we've, got, to normal, we've got a yeah. big, we've got lots of lots of shows booked in for next year. So it's just really, it's just fingers crossed because uh, I know we all really want to get back on the road because it's just great to go out and play. And, and I, I love meeting people after the show. You know, you hear people's stories about the music, how it affected them, all that kind of stuff. And you get to sort of meet the people who have actually gone out and bought the records over the years. So I think it's a really important part of the, the whole thing that we do. My thanks to Bill Sharp and Jill Sayward from Shack Attack, who still regularly play live and have a three-part compilation album out called All Around the World, 40th Anniversary. Cool and the gang have enjoyed a string of hits worldwide, including Ladies' Night, Too Hot, Get Down On It, Joanna and Cherish, having evolved their jazz roots to soul, R&B and disco. Their leader from day one is Robert Cool Bell, who told me how the group was formed from a bunch of schoolmates. Yeah, actually, grammar school and high school. Uh, how did that happen? Well, um, let me start off. My brother and I, we are, we're from Youngstown, Ohio. And our family, we moved to uh, Jersey City in 1960. And then 1964, we met some of the uh, original members of the band back in the day through grammar school and high school. That was uh, Mr. George Brown, Dennis Thomas, uh, and then Spike Mickens, uh, and then later came uh, 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 Charles Smith, uh, of course Ricky West, and that was our, our first group. We called ourselves the Jazzy Acts. And then we got involved with um, an organization called, uh, called Soul Town. And Soul Town was trying to be like Motown. So we became the Soul Town Band. And we had to learn all these songs, all these Motown hits. You know, we'd do we'd about six or seven artists uh, on the shows, and we most of them would be singing Motown hits, some James Brown stuff, but mostly uh, Motown. And how did you feel about doing just covers at that point? 
Well, we were just uh, young. I mean, we was coming out of Grambling High School, you know. It was just you were great. just kids. Yeah, yeah, we were just kids. We didn't know where things were going to go from that point. But, uh, you know, we loved the music. And at that young age, uh, like my brother and even myself, we were into jazz. My brother loved John Coltrane, a Spike, uh, loved Miles Davis and Freddie Hubbard. I used to listen to uh, Ron Carter and uh, uh, Reggie Workman, all those guys that was with the Jazz Crusaders. And then uh, we moved on to now, backing up. See, my thing, although I, I, I was into the different jazz artists, we were uh, uh, backing up these artists that were singing Motown hits. So I was kind of like out there hanging out too. I pretty My girl, you know, all that stuff, you know. The band went through lots of different names, though, didn't it? You started as the Jazzy Axe, but it was quite an evolution before you became Cool and the Gang. Yeah. Well, I started with the uh, Jazzy Axe, and then, of course, the Soul Town Band, when we was playing the Motown records. And then it went to Cool and the Flames. When we left the Soul Town organization, we became Cool and the Flames. And, of course, uh, James Brown was definitely uh, a lot inspiration to us. And at that time, it was James Brown and the famous flames. So you were worried about confusion or a legal suit? We just didn't have no problem with the Godfather, so... Uh, <laughs> you weren't going to mess with James Brown. <laughs> so, so we said, well, what can we call ourselves? So we went home one day. We had a manager by the name of Gene Red, and we thought of a lot of different names. All the names we came back with wasn't working. So I don't know if it was Gene or one of the other guys in the band, but Gene was one of our first managers. He said, well, why don't we just call it Cool in the Gang? Oh, okay, that sounds interesting. Cool in the gang. Because, it's as easy as that. Yeah, just as easy as that. And your, your real name is Robert Bell. So where did the cool come from then, cool? Cool was my nickname when I uh, came to Jersey City. Uh, before there was a cool in the gang, I was cool. I was hanging out, you know, trying to fit into the neighborhood. You know, it was a little rough neighborhood. Oh, so you could fit into the neighborhood, so you had a slightly cooler name. Like, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I said, well... There was a guy also named Cool. He spelled his name with a C. I said, I'm going to spell mine with a K. Okay, which is and, distinctive, yes. And that's So how, that was Cool and the Gang in yeah. 1969. So then you signed with Delight Records. Right. We, we, uh, we, we worked on the first album uh, through 68. And then we came out with our very first... Actually, we introduced ourselves to the business in 1969. Cool and the Gang, album Cool and the Gang, single cool in the game right and a lot of people thought we were the spanish band <laughs> right and we were running around the city oh that's our music that's our music you know listen we're on the radio <laughs> <laughs> but then uh you know that record went top 40 pop the record cool in the game top 40 yes yeah, yeah. And it was more of a we did sound like a spanish band there were no singers Oh, right. So you know, it was, the first album was entirely instrumental, which I think is surprised a lot of people. Yes, it was, yeah. And, and was it quite jazzy? Yeah, it was uh, jazzy. We, we, we took the elements of the jazz and uh, uh, backing up the, uh, the other groups that were singing the Soul Town stuff. Uh, Motown. Motown stuff. And we created that, that sound. So you had a couple of hits in the US, but they didn't translate across um, the world. They didn't, weren't successful here in the UK, for example, but you had two hits in the US, and then things sort of went the wrong way. Yeah, we had, uh, in the earlier days, there was an album called Good Times, and we had uh, 
Cool and the Gang live at the Sex Machine. Uh, we had, uh, uh, and then we did a lot of singles like Funky Man, Funky Granny. It wasn't until it wasn't until we put together the Wild and Peaceful album, right. which had Hollywood Swinging, Jungle Boogie, and Funky Style. So that was really you finding the Cool and the Gang sound. Yeah, we finally had created our sound. I mean. Um, we were more, our sound was still horn driven, but they're like in Hollywood swinging Ricky West, he did the vocal on that. And we would do a lot of chant stuff, and, uh, Jungle Boogie and funky stuff. And, um, and that was a big album for us, actually. You know, we had, uh, see, Hollywood Swinger was top five, and Jungle Boogie was top five. Brilliant. And funky stuff was number one R and B. So for you were about on your way at this weeks. point. You were you were you were actually getting some recognition. We were on the move. Yeah, you were yeah. on the move. Yeah. But the irony is though, disco came along and the whole Saturday night fever thing came along. And look, there's no better records to dance to than Cool and the Gang Records. I mean you invented the best records to dance to, but you didn't do very well during the disco period. No, it was this anti uh, disco movement. But uh, um, we were uh, very successful with our record company. To get on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Right, you were on there, of course yeah, you were. Yeah, we yeah. one song on there. Yeah, yes. Open yes. Sesame. Yes. And Open Sesame, we were trying to be commercial, but we still had to keep our identity. Because if you listen to the horn lines on Open Sesame, it was like you change the beat to swing, you would be swinging. Right. You know, right. and a lot of groups didn't even dare to play that song, you know, and even in the cover band, because of what the horns were doing. Right. The horns was our singers. That, yeah. But did you not feel, though, at some point you were sort of slightly losing the sound because you were trying to become a disco band, and that wasn't really what you are? Yeah, because we did this thing, Everybody's Dancing, and yeah. it was heavy, you know, danceable. We still had the horns thing moving, but yeah. So we, um, we, uh, we made, this is how we made the change. We were on the road with the Jackson Five at the time, and the uh, uh, the producer of the tour was a guy by the name of Dick Griffey, who later on had Solar Records. Right. Okay. So Dick saw us. He said, "You guys are doing great on the tour, but you know what I think you guys need?" We said, "What, Dick? I think you need a lead singer." He said, "Lead singer?" <laughs> so we thought about, "Yeah, you might be right," because uh, Commodores had Lionel Richie. Earth, Wind & Fire had Philip Bailey and Maurice White. And some of our songs you can sing with, you know, yeah. just didn't have a lead singer. Right. And that's, so you thought that was a changing point? That was a changing so point. So you hired James J.T. Taylor. Right. And that was a, a very pivotal moment. You also changed your producer. Right. To Yamir Diodalo. Yes. Yeah. And those two changes actually then made Cool Again just go mega. Right. Well, Diodalo says us. Actually, J, uh, JT was the only guy we really auditioned. Uh, really? Yeah, and then he got the job because uh, when he came into the studio, a house of music back in uh, New Jersey, uh, my brother, uh, Khalid, who writes a lot of the stuff, he said, let me hear you sing something. And he said, uh, he played some jazz progressions. JT kind of flowed with that. He played some funk stuff, and JT flowed with that. He said, hey, you're the guy. We're going with that you. easy. Yeah. Now so you signed him straight away? I signed him straight away. Now, my wife and I was hanging out in New York during that time at Studio 54, a regime, some of the uh, clubs over there, and we realized that uh, in the weekends it was ladies' night. 
So I went back to the guys. We're in the studio working on the album with JT and the new Cool and the Gang style. I said, I got a great idea. They said, what? I said, ladies' night. Huh. My brother said, that's interesting, ladies' night. I said, yeah. I mean, they do ladies' night all over the world. Every weekend it's ladies' night. And that's when we came up and put together ladies' night. It was that easy. It was that easy. So that album was a huge album. You had two big hits on that, Too Hot and, of course, Ladies' Night. And this was really, Cool and the Gang, now really, really taking off. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Dear Dollar said one thing to us. She said, listen now, you have a lead singer now, so you got to back off some of the jazz licks. Right. And we said, what? We said, yeah, you got to make, so you room, sure you make room for the singer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why it's your ladies' night. There's a sparse on. But it worked. And Dear Dollar knew exactly where. And he's a jazz guy. We figured, oh, we got Dear Dollar. We're going to get more jazz. <laughs> you know? So he said, uh-uh. No, we're not going that way. You have a lead singer now, so you got to make room for the so singer. So he gave you good direction. The thing about JT is JT, too, has got tremendous warmth, really great warm vocals, and you think, which I think added so much to the band. Yeah, yeah. They never heard us with a lead singer. No, right. Yeah, and that definitely did. Yeah. yeah. So that album sold over a million copies. Yeah. And Ladies' Night was the first hit in the UK, and that was, right. I think, the first time that Cool and the Gang really made a big impact in Europe. Okay. Oh. And we, I mean, I remember hearing Ladies' Night for the first time and thinking, wow, who is this band? Podcast Radio. And this is Private Lives. I'm Paul Robinson. My guest is Cool from Cool and the Gang. After that came Celebration. Although Ladies' Night had uh, Too Hot on there. That was another big too one Too Hot was us. a big hit. Bigger hit in the US than it was in Europe. Okay. I don't know why. It's yeah. funny, isn't it, actually? Let's ask you about that. Because you look at your singles, and some have been bigger in the UK, and some have been bigger in the US. The same songs don't necessarily do the same charting mm-hmm. in, the two, in, the two, in Europe and in the US. Yeah. But after that, the next big hit was, of course, the celebration. The celebration. And like I said, we were uh, celebrating the fact that uh, we turned our career around. We, we, we survived the disco is dead. Syndrome. <laughs> celebrate is so much more than the song. Celebrate's now become an anthem. It's yes. you know it's used everywhere for celebrations all over the world. I mean, what a brilliant idea! Well, it was a celebration for us. We were celebrating. And one part of the ladies and I has a, a party. But come on, let's all celebrate this your night tonight. My brother took that song, that hook from Ladies Night, and came up with celebration. He played the track for me. It had that. Kind of down home. Remind you sitting on the porch and grandma and grandpa rocking in the rocking chair. Down, down, down. Yahoo! <laughs> it worked. Yeah. <laughs> it, look, it was a mega, mega hit. Yeah, yeah. And still is today. And, so, and look, it gets played on the radio the whole time. And it's been used in all sorts of things. I mean, you used it in the 1980 World Series, the Super Bowl, the NBA <sighs> Championship. This became an institution, this song. I don't know if you knew this, it was played in the space station when the astronauts got out one morning. Oh, really? They were playing Celebration. Oh, wow. That yeah. must have made you very proud. Yeah, that was in cyberspace. <laughs> that, I mean, when, when you wrote Celebration, you obviously had no idea it was going to be as big as it was. No idea, because Lazy Night was just so big. Yeah. And, and uh, Celebration was inspiration because of the fact that we were able to turn our career around. Yeah, I mean, back before that came about, and uh, the thing with Ladies Night and everything, people didn't know, say, are you guys still working? Are you guys still together as a band? Yes, we are. 
and we turned around and then we ran into the next decade, you know. Now what's amazing about you guys is you were formed in 1964, this big period of success starts in 1979, so you had 15 years of really learning your craft and, and you know, really refining the Cool and the Gang sound. That's dedication. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Even uh, after the uh, Wild and Peaceful album, we had a you know, Light, of, uh, Light of Worlds album, was the album uh, Summer Madness. The Rocky movie, Sylvester Stallone was laying down on the couch and getting ready about to deal with this fight he's getting ready to have. And what comes up? Summer Madness. Summer Madness. <laughs> yeah. How do you keep it? How do you keep the band's morale and your motivation going when you know you've you've worked for so many years to get your big moment? I mean, 15 years is a long time to stay focused, stay together, and then it all happens. You know, 15 years later. Well, you know, again. Um, I think uh, we, we, we give a lot of credit to our fans, you know, because they've been kind of like an up and down uh, battle for us, you know, but, you know, the fans are always there, even if it was just territorial or universal, you know, the fans always supported us, and we always uh, try to be true to what we're about and coming up with things that, um, titles that we experienced, like Ladies Night, George Brown, too hot is a real situation. He was 17, fell in love, and then high school sweetheart. But things didn't work out too well, you know. So um, I would say, and then our parents. Our parents told us, always stick together. You know, as a family, you know, uh, I mean, my brother was my brother in the band. But whenever the times got hard, we, 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 we stuck together. We didn't, we didn't give up. We, you we were just a kept moving. Yeah, we you kept moving. Well, the next song I want to play is Jones versus Jones, which was a big hit in the UK, actually a bigger hit in the UK than it was in the US. That's 17, 17 in the UK, 39 in the US. But it's all over the radio here. That's interesting because Jones versus Jones was about written by George Brown, the major writer. It was uh, after Too Hot. They broke up, and then came Jones versus Jones. Here, come, here comes the attorney. <laughs> okay. Well, one thing you be sure of is the attorney's the one who always wins in any legal suit. They're the ones that always do okay. So was that acrimonious then, the, uh, the legal process? No. It was okay. No, no they just broke up. They just it. broke up, that uh, was okay. it. Okay, let's, 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 not have, let's not sue each other. All right. Whatever. But that, well, that's when uh, uh, George thought of the song called Jones vs. Jones. And it, but it's such a cool song. I mean, it's such a really it's cool, smooth, smooth yeah. song. But it's about, you know, a mm -hmm. breakup. Yeah, it's about a breakup. They broke up, man. They got too hot and they had to get out of there. <laughs> ELR on podcast radio. My guest is Cool from Cool and the Gang. That's this is Private Lives. Big success now. You're, you're on the road, I guess, a lot. How are you managing that with your families and all the other commitments? Well, I mean, uh, most of my, I got grandchildren now. and uh, Surely not. You're far too young. Uh, yeah. You're looking but good, I, man. But I have to say, I lost my wife a year ago. I'm sorry to. And, uh, 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 um, you know, she became like my partner as well because we started a company called uh, Just Cool Enterprises. And we were doing various things for, for kids, uh, Cool Kids Foundation that she started. She had another organization called Dream Stars. It was like the American Idol with young talent. I wanted to get up and do something. You know, so, but I mean, but our, our families uh, definitely have been very supportive over the years. And you've done stuff too to encourage kids to go to school by giving tickets out. Which is yeah. a lovely idea. We did one called Cool to Stay in School. Cool to Stay in <laughs> School. And did it work? It, it worked. Matter of fact, uh, we did 42 cities with uh, Cherry Coke. And one of the cities that we went to, 
a group came up and said, hey, we're doing good in school because we used to meet the children um, uh, before the show. And uh, we want to sing something for you in uh, a cappella. I said, what? So they started singing. And my cousin said, hey, those guys sound great. So we brought them to New York. You know who that group uh, was? Color Me Bad. Color Me Bad, And they yes. had that song, I want to sex you up. Yes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I remember at the BBC, we had some trouble with that initially, but we did play yeah, the I guess we, so. were bit, we were a bit <laughs> yeah. worried at one point. Yeah, yeah, I, I would imagine. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we had Color Me Bad, we discovered Pink. You know Pink? Pink, was, yes, They were yes. discovered by us also. Yeah. The Fugees. Fugees, yes. They all came to the cool good, again good, good bands. Yeah. yeah, yeah, good bands. So, um, next song I want to play is, um, I think, probably the one that you cannot possibly sit down to. You know, I defy any human being to sit down when Get Down On It is on the radio or played in the club. This is just such an amazingly brilliant song. I love this song. Oh, yeah. My brother came up with the idea, uh, idea with that to Get Down On It. You know, it was all during that period of celebration and that album, and the album came after that. Well, my, a guy came up to my brother. He says, he said, you ever listen to Bob Marley? He said, yeah. Listen to Bob Marley a little more. My brother said, okay. So he was inspired to write Get Down On It from reggae. From really? Yeah, from the Bob Marley. It's not obvious. I mean, it's, it's not got, obvious. It's not no. obvious, no. No, but the group, you know, and and people, it was hard to believe that you got, you pulled that from. That's a great story. I'd never have known that. Yeah, yeah. It came from Bob Marley. Get down on it. And and it, it is sort of just going away, isn't it? Because it's so dancing. It's both. Yeah, it's both. Yeah. You're now, you know, obviously very successful, and the band are doing very well. How was your? How did your life change? Did you did you buy a bigger car? Did you buy a bigger house? Did you have first class seats on the plane? Actually, my house in New Jersey. I've been to that house for 35 years. Same house. But it's. The home of Thomas Edison. Oh, electric light bulb man. Yeah, the Tom, Thomas Edison. The Thomas Edison. He has laautory right outside. It's called Llewellyn Park. Which right. is, this is the British name too, right? It's British. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's called Llewellyn Park, and uh, I've been there for, for 35 years. I just recently got a, a second home down in Florida, uh, down in uh, uh, down there with Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, who's making all the money. <laughs> <laughs> I worked for the Walt Disney Company for a number oh, of years. Oh, you know what I'm yes, talking I about. Did, yeah, yes. I'm in Orlando also. Okay, so you're in Orlando as well. So um, the, the Thomas Edison house, were, were there any Thomas Edison uh, artifacts around the house? Any clues it was Thomas Edison's house? Well, I mean, um, you know, uh, like every now and then they let people come in to visit the house. But I was told, I don't know, I have to do more research on that, that his house was part of the slave trade, that sometimes the slaves would stay in that house. That's not Secretly. So Secretly. No. Secretly. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was uh, looking out for it. He was looking out for, for that. Um, now, just before Christmas, uh, we had Midge Ewer as a guest, and uh, he was talking about um, Band Aid and Do They Know It's Christmas. And I think you are the only US band to appear on that record. And, and he says the day was pretty chaotic. When they were trying to set it up, they realized that Ultravox and the Boomtown Rats was never enough, and they got Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet. But how did they attract you to be on Band-Aid? Well, we were on the same label with Bob Geldof. And we were in town, we were touring around the UK, and uh, 
The record company came to us and said, listen, uh, they're doing a song, uh, I forgot, was Friday morning or Saturday morning, about the, uh, the starvation and the uh, problems that they were having in Ethiopia. Ethiopia. And they asked us, would you like to be a part of it? We said, absolutely. So what do we do? We said, well, you got to be in the studio early uh, Saturday or Sunday morning, whatever it was. And we had all these great artists that was there. It was a who's who of pop and rock. Oh, yeah. Feed the world, let them know it's Christmas time again. It was great. It was great. And number one record. How was it on the day, though? I mean, because you had to do the whole thing in one day. You had all these different artists. How did you know which bit you were going to sing, and how did you get everybody aligned? Well, we did know. We were happy to be there. We knew that uh, Bob Geldof, the producer, and uh, uh, he might have been the writer who it was. We knew we had to all blend in. You know, I mean, you had, what, Bono was there, too? Bono yeah, was there, I mean, yeah, you, yeah. You had all these great artists, and everybody had a little part. Yeah, no, it must have been amazing to be part of that. It was great. It was great. And it, it now, at the time, we didn't know that that record was going to do what it did. No, I mean, it was a huge record, and of yeah. course, it then produced Live Aid. Yeah, Live Aid came after that. And, yeah. and Live Aid was an amazing success. That was amazing know, as well. Concerts in the US and in the UK at the same time. Yeah. Well, we're going to fast forward now to um, Joanna. Again, a big hit. In fact, it's the only song that had the same chart position in the UK and the US. Oh, okay. It was number two in both countries. This is a very smooth, melodic, beautiful song. The guy who came up with the concept of that idea, he wanted to write a song about his mother. And he was calling it Dear Ma. And we're in the studio with Dear Dalo and uh, uh, our, uh, our engineer. And so JT was trying to sing a hook to Dear Ma on the track. It wasn't working. So. I don't know if it was a Diodalo or one of the other guys in the band. Why don't you try uh, somebody's name, a lady's name? I said, well, we'll come up with something. Well, let's try Joanna. Did you know a Joanna? No. Did you know a Joanna? It was no, a fictional no. name. No, it just, it just came up with that because yeah. Dear Mom wasn't working. And he got in there and started singing, Joanna. Wow. Magic. <laughs> That's how, that's how it happened. And that's how it was. Yeah. And have, have Joannas around the world reacted to that song? Because it's such a beautiful song. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, when that record was out, it was the most played record in, in the U.S. The Joanna, most played? At that time, for that time period. For, for radio. Because it's a brilliant radio record, isn't it? Oh, yeah. People say, oh, they went all the way pop now. <laughs> yeah, they crossed over, then they crossed way over. <laughs> but it was still the cool sound, wasn't it? It was, yeah, it still it was, was still that sound. sound. It was still, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. You're still touring, you're still gigging, you're still recording. I mean, you're, you're just uh, a glutton for punishment, aren't you? Well, we do over 100 shows a year. 100? Uh, yeah. But you know what it is? I, um, over the years, from when we started, the original members to the guys that we have now, I got some guys been with me for 30 years, 20 years, uh, and most recently, like Walt, uh, Walt, uh, Walt Anderson been with me for uh, uh, 10 years. We had a record album called uh, 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 Too Sexy. Uh, yes. Another one we had, you know. Um, that he did with my son called Royalty, with my uh, uh, my son Prince Hakeem. He's a writer producer. He he travels with us from right. time to time also. So and, and, do, and do you write when you're on the road? Sometimes, yeah. 
Yeah, we come up with different ideas on the road. Yeah. So you told me about a couple of inspirations. Some songwriters have said to me that they, they like to get a title. I mean, you, you got Joanna and that fitted for that song, but sometimes they like to find a title, like, you know, name of this restaurant maybe, and then that inspires a song. Do you do that? Yeah, that happens a lot. I mean, uh, when we first went to uh, Trinidad, we, uh, funny thing, it was during the time they ended up having a revolution in Trinidad. We had, we had to stay there for two weeks. And out of that, we came up with Caribbean Festival. I don't know if you heard a song called Caribbean Festival. I have. We came up with that. While you were over there. While we were over there. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and with 100 gigs a year, how do you manage that? Because you're going from hotel room to plane to hotel room, you know. I mean, it's quite tiring, isn't it? I mean, you're, you're, you're a young guy, but you're not 21 anymore. Well, yeah, it is. It is. But I mean, because we, um, we love what we do. And we break it up. Sometimes, you know, um, my brother might not come out on the road. Sometimes he will. And sometimes Dennis comes out and sometimes you don't. But we, we have about 13 to 14 people. So it's almost like a, a soccer team or NBA team. Sometimes you're on the bench and sometimes well, you're yeah, playing. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, if he can't make it, all right, call Lewis Taylor. Or call Shelly, you know. And they all know the music. So that's important. They all... It's like they fit right in. So it's a team, it's a family. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you ever forget which city you're in? Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wake up in the morning, late. Which bed am I in? <laughs> yeah, and you say, oh, I got to be downstairs. Especially when you don't get a wake-up call. Oh, yeah, yeah that's terrible. You, oh, you don't get a yeah. wake-up call and yeah. it's late. You look around, look at the car. Wow, they didn't call me. You jump up out of the bed, running downstairs. <laughs> your, your tour manager said, all right, Mr. Bell, what are you? I mean, I'm his boss, but hey, we got we got to make this flight. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, look, the discipline and the, the hard work is really appreciated. But your passion is just there. I mean, you obviously just love what you do. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, we had some great fun. I mean, and our late year, just five years ago, uh, we did uh, 42 shows with Van Halen. And the people said, "What? Well, Van Halen's an unusual person to be. Yeah, very different music to that's you." That's what they said. Van Halen, how in the world, who came up with that idea? It was David Lee Roth. Oh. He saw us at the Glastonbury Music Festival. At that time, that day, he had U2 was on there, Coldplay, part of the big rock group. And he said, man, you guys rocked it. So I called uh, Eddie and Alex, said, I found the, the opening act. He said, you're not a support act, you're an open act for us. Quite and right. He said, who? Said cool on the guy, Daddy. What you been smoking? <laughs> I mean, I had even out. I mean, uh, uh, David Lee Roth. He said, "Man, I just saw them guys rock that audience." He said, and it was about him coming back for their 20 year, I think, celebration. So he said, "This is what I want." So he told me to listen. In the 80s, you guys had celebration, the ladies' night, and we had jump. He said, back when we first started, we used to play funky stuff and Hollywood swinging out in the clubs in LA. He said, 60% of our audience are ladies. And he said, um, so let's go out and have a party. Fantastic. And when we did the shows, them, them ladies, uh, he was right. When we got the ladies night and get that on. You see, everybody loves ladies night, even Van Halen. Oh, oh yeah. And yeah. music is music, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And then we turned around, and Kid Rock saw it, and then we ended up doing 10 shows with Kid Rock. Then Dave Matthews' band. 
It just, you know... Isn't it great, all it these was, different genres coming together? You know, it's amazing. Oh, yeah, it was, definitely. Well, we're going to end with another hit, and we're going to end with Cherish, another very sweet, beautiful song. Cherish. We were in, uh, um, uh, in the Bahamas, we got Compass Point, and we're in the studio, and we had our families there, and we're working on That became the uh, emergency album. So we had our families there, and uh, we're in the studio, and we're out on the beach, and you know, um, some of our, one of our, uh, our road guys would take some of the kids out on the boat. So we were just having a good time and cherishing our families. And we came up with the song, Cherish the Love, thankful for what we went through. And it's all a lovely sentiment year. we can all buy into and I think agree with. Yeah, yeah and that's what we came up with. Uh, Cherish the love, let's take a walk together along the ocean shore. It's, it's <laughs> a lovely sentiment. Cool, it's been a complete honour and pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. My thanks to Robert Coolbell from the brilliant Cool and the Gang, and before that, the equally cool Bill Sharp and Jill Sayward of Shack Attack. Very much after the Olympics, we as East London were able to show the world that there's a place called Stratford, and it's not the Shakespeare one, there's this other place where we've built something absolutely amazing that the whole of the world are looking at for a few weeks. And then the, all, the, all the media people disappeared and leaving us with, you actually look at it, you go, well, why isn't there a local radio station for East London? And that was kind of the first thought. Also understanding there's lots of people who could usefully be involved in that. So there's those two reasons. It's like, well, maybe it's an idea to set up a radio station out here. Let's give it a go, see what happens really was just like that. We are the voice of East London, ELR. This has been the Private Lives Podcast from East London Radio. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Paul Robinson. There'll be more Private Lives soon. Private Lives with Paul Robinson on East London Radio. It is now 2024, and the choice is up to you. Do you listen to good podcasts, or do you listen to bad ones? Well, we've got a suggestion for you. How about you listen to a good podcast? for the first time in your miserable life. I can think of one. Overnight Drive. Going strong. 11 years now. The podcast about nothing. Your favorite podcast's favorite podcast. Do you enjoy nothing? <laughs> so do we. Why don't you come over and check it out and stop listening to other podcasts. Thank you.